The Athletic. Lauren Hemp. So difficult to stop. Oh! And then we'll get to Hannah. And then we'll get to Hannah. Miedema. Miedema from the Dokers. Miedema. Goal, 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 goal. Teodoro. Hello and welcome to the Athletic Women's Football Podcast. Coming up, past Euros in the words of England greats. It's Kate Borsay here with Lindsay Hooper and joining us, the Athletic's Katie Wyatt. In the special Euros preview episode, we'll hear Katie speaking to one England great from each of the Euros that England has played in, starting back in 1984. Uh, you'll find all of this as well in an article on the Athletic website too. Before we get stuck in though, Katie, how was it for you looking back, doing all these interviews and why did you want to do it? Yeah, it was a real range of emotions really that I was experiencing. I mean, to talk about why we wanted to do the article, I think most of the credit lies with Alex Kierjelski, who's one of the editors and came up with the idea. And I imagine that his driving force behind it was that when we look at tournaments, that yes, in the men's football world, you look back and you have stories of players doing this and you've kind of got the fabled dentist chair and all sorts of different behind the scenes stories. But I think you maybe lose some of the political side of it and the equality side and all of the significance and the almost loadedness that comes with the developments in the women's game because a lot of these developments are tied to how women are viewed in the world, how women's sports are viewed, why or why not they're receiving funding and things like that. So I think that it's all of those social considerations that come with it that make these pieces so engaging and so important. In terms of my emotions, a real mixture of them, I think that there are sometimes that you hear details that are quite charming and you think, oh, how amazing that there were volunteers that were willing to do that. But there's also a little bit of confusion and frustration of the fact that these are elite athletes who are, as we'll probably hear in the piece, having to maybe sleep on sports hall floors because they can't afford accommodation or having to take time on paid off of work or who are maybe not getting the recognition or the opportunities that their talent affords just because they're women. So there's a real, real sense of frustration that you kind of get as much of these players are like, oh, they were the good old days and that's just what it was like. And there's a certain bit of acceptance from them. For a lot of them, there's a real sense of missed opportunity and a wish that maybe they did get the recognition that their male counterparts do. Well, it really is a riveting listen. So congratulations on this. Uh, we will be hearing from Jill Coulthard, Marianne Spacey-Kale, Pauline Cope, Mo Marley, Rachel Yankee, Enia Luco, Anita Asante and Jodie Taylor. Now, apologies in advance for some slight audio interference on some of these. Uh, Rachel Yankee's baby as well crops up occasionally. We had that on a recent <laughs> podcast, didn't we, Kate? Um, but we start with Jill Coulthard, who played in the first Women's European Championship finals back in 1984. We did really well in the semi-finals, obviously beating Denmark, and then obviously we uh, Sweden in the final. We met up on the Friday, and we played the game on the Sunday, and they absolutely bucketed it down with rain. And then obviously we played it at Luton. It never stopped raining, so you can imagine the state of the pitch. It really in the in today's. It wouldn't have been played. It'd have been cancelled. And then they were saying, "Well, if we cancel it, when they're going to play it again? Will we have to play on the Monday? Will people going back to work on the Monday?" That's obviously how tight it was for us in those days. But yeah, I mean, we we, we played the game. 
it was really it was unplayable to be fair uh, we managed to get uh, an equaliser so that was good for us and then obviously it went to penalties the dreaded penalties um, I think I was the one to take it after the first five but obviously we never got that far because uh, we lost out we missed, missed a couple of penalties so uh, Sweden were the, the victors of that of that game I was looking back and it was saying that it was spread across four countries yes. across the month. I mean, what was that like in terms of time off work and the flights? Oh, and... horrendous. <laughs> but luckily enough, you know, we look at the group that we had. We have Northern Ireland. Uh, I can't remember now the group that we had. But, uh, but yeah, it was horrendous. But, you know, I was quite fortunate. You know, I, I managed to get time off with pay, whereas a lot of the other girls had to use their holidays and just use them up just solely playing football for England, which... You know, when you look now of, 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 of what we've got and how it's moved on, it, it, you know, it's a different kettle of fish. What was it like for you, though, because you go from playing in a high-stakes European final to then going back to work and no one talking about it? What's that like mentally? <laughs> it is difficult. It was difficult. I mean, obviously, my family knew, obviously, about it. My friends knew about it. None of the female players at Doncaster knew about it. But that was just the way of life. You just went to, you just played a, you know, a European final on the Sunday and then you went back to work on the Monday. It was that was just the norm of our uh, the way that we played international football for for a lot of years until until the FA took over. What was the international landscape like before this? Because this was the first UEFA tournament. What was yeah? What was it like before? Was it just occasional friendlies? Yeah, yeah, that's all it was. Just friendlies, um, invitations to play in different tournaments like the uh, Mundialito tournament in Italy where you had three or four teams like the Danes. Uh, the Americans came over when we played them in Italy. Just little things like that, really. That's that's all you played. We were only playing three or four a year and my career spanned 20 years. So three or four a year, you know, you look now, they're playing eight, nine and ten. And how did you manage with nutrition then? Were you pretty much just allowed to eat whatever you wanted or? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Nothing, you know, nothing now like the lioness has got. It was just a case of you just went to obviously the hotel. We had breakfast. We had an evening meal. There was nothing now, now what they get, you know, the lionesses get. It's a different, it's a different, it's a different world. You know, even like the facilities to train, you know, we had to beg, steal and borrow to, to try and train somewhere. Whereas now the lionesses have got everything there for them, and like I say, that's that's where we should be at, and you know, long may it continue. Would you ever have like a fry up on the day of a game? Was that allowed? Yeah, 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 yeah. You would, yeah. Of course you would. It's just the, it was just the norm. It never, it didn't. We we didn't see anything different about that. We didn't think that that would ever not, you know, would help or it wouldn't. I mean, don't get me wrong. Everybody's got different eating habits, but you do watch what you eat a little bit. You knew what what worked for you and what didn't. But you know, you're not going to have fish and chips for your pretty for your pre match meal. You just have you know what you you would normally have. On a lunchtime, which would probably just be uh, eggs on toast or a bit of pasta or mm. that's it. I was going to ask, because you mentioned earlier about how you had to beg and borrow to get into play mm. anywhere. Were people, because mm. obviously the ban had only been lifted a few years earlier, were people quite reluctant to let women train on their facilities? Obviously the Lionesses now have St George's Park. Would your training venue just any kind of sports hall that would Yeah, yeah, well, yeah, I think we went to Bisham Abbey. We've trained, to be fair, we've trained at sports centres. We've even kept on the floors in sports centres for a two-day camp where we've kept on the floor. Then one that we met up on the Saturday, stay over Saturday night, kept on the floor. 
<laughs> so yeah so uh but yeah you just got to rely on what anybody could throw at us and people talk about the 84 and, and things like that but there's you know i think the people the backroom people need a you know a, a good mention as well because without linda whitehead pat gregory june jaycox flo bilton to name a few you know we wouldn't have had we wouldn't have had anything what did you get? What kind of stuff did you get? Did you get? Uh, we just got basically, you know, we, we managed to get a sponsorship for uh, a small SPAWL kit. They sponsored us the kit. We got a kit off Adidas. So it was just really trying to get, you know, trying to get, because at that time, don't forget, we, we, we weren't under the auspice of the FA, so we didn't get the kits that the men got. We were just having our own kits that were provided through sponsorship, and we, we, we were grateful for that, you know, for us to get brand new tracksuits. It was, you know, unheard of, really, to be honest. We were, all went out together, but we didn't necessarily have tracksuits because we didn't have them. So, you know, like all these little de- these details, as much as, you know, you might think, oh, well, we're all there like the lionesses are. It was nothing like that at all. Let's just hope now that everything that the girls have got at St George's Park and the the staff, the amount of staff, don't forget we only went with a physio, a manager and a couple of um, helpers like Linda or whether it be Flo or whether it had been June or whether it had been Pat Gregory. That was our little, little team. That was it. It's not like now you've got more coaching staff and backroom staff than you have players going away with England. Marianne Spacey-Kale, you played in the 1987 Euros. I don't know if you want to start by telling us what your main memories of that time are, about, I don't know, the number of fans that you had, the kind of kit you'd have, or anything like that. Yeah, I mean, we had one kit which we wore for a game and then it got took away and washed and then got put, you know, we wore it again. So you're always fighting for the socks. I remember we always used to fight for the socks because the socks would get smaller and smaller (laughs) every time they were washed. So we were always trying to find the biggest pair because I had quite big calves. So I was always trying to find the biggest pair of socks that I could to fit my calves. But yeah, we would meet, if we were playing on the Sunday, we would meet on the Friday. Everyone would finish work, drive to probably Lillyshaw and then prepare for the game there, train on Saturday, play on Sunday and drive back Sunday night to have jobs on the Monday. So there was a lot of, you know, in terms of the logistics and in terms of, what it looked like then to what it looked like now, it is absolutely completely different. But what I would say is that the desire and the passion to play for your country is no different. And did you have to, did a lot of your money go on like match fees or petrol or anything like that? Or was, was the FA paying for stuff by this point? No, we were, you know, we got, we got limited expenses for England camps, just travel expenses. Obviously everything else was paid for, the flights and hotels and everything was still paid for. I'm trying to trying to think. In we still were pretty much our own training kit on camps, mm. you know. So we would be in either like the team you supported, or you know, a, a tra- an old England kit that you might have had uh, that we were training in. So, um, but the match kit was the match kit, and but training kit was whichever kit you had available to you as a as a player to take with you. And was the match kit was it all men's kit, and had it been donated, or did you buy it yourself? No, it was all, it was, because um, it was, 87 was the Women's Football Association, so it was the WFA kit. It probably was men's kit, but it was quite fitted. Mm. We didn't have massive shirts, but I think we, they, they you know, the, I think it was Linda Whitehead at the women's, FA, the women's FA, she made sure that the kit was as fitted as it could be, so, so that was probably uh, 
quite decent for us. But yeah, we didn't have to buy our kit, and we didn't have to we didn't have to take it home and wash it, and hope that we were picked for the next squad either. Did you get England caps back then, or we, did people make their own for you? How did that work? Yeah, you had, you got a cap, and then every time you played, you got a pin badge. So okay. you had the cap with all the different pin badges in. So yeah, I've still got that one. That's my, probably my proudest one, I guess. Had someone hand stitched that then, or done it by hand, or? Yeah, Flo Bilton was. Uh, so she was another sort of stalwart of the women's game and pioneer of the women's game. So she, I think, she made or certainly sourced all the caps, and then you get it presented, you know, after your first game. So. Like the history of your cap is is very important. Who presented you with the cap, and do you remember where it was? Yeah, it was at Lee Ellen Road, and it was presented by Martin Regan, the England manager at the time. Oh, okay. And we just beat Northern Ireland six 0 What kind of crowds were you playing in front of? Certainly in '87, there was probably about between 600 and 1500 at games depending where they were well how the publicity had gone and uh which team we were playing and how did that compare to what you were used to on a weekly thing yeah it was always you know we were quite fortunate when i was playing for wimbledon we played at plough lane so we'd have a really strong back in there we'd get one two thousand players there uh, people there at some games and other games we'd get 500 so you know, we were quite good in terms of when we played there, we got good crowds. But yeah, so but a lot of time it was 100, 200 mm. playing people. It was family, friends and and the odd, uh, the odd curious bystander. And did you ever get any journalists or media coverage or was it hardly anything? Certainly at England we had, you know, I've still got sort of like scrapbooks somewhere in the loft and at home which have got like lots of write-ups mm. and lots of... You know, different stories about the players, which was which was quite interesting to read. But it was it gave people the understanding of what what the players were were the choice they made to play for their country, still work and still be you know some be parents as well. So it was good to showcase what what the choices were and sometimes the sacrifices people were making to play for their country. Is there anything else that you want to add, or do you think that we've got everything there? I think that's pretty much, yeah, that would probably cover it because obviously the FA took over in 93, didn't they? So, mm. you know, things changed then. But like I said, no matter who, no matter who, what club you were playing for, no matter what crowd were there, you could speak to any of the players that played for England in those days and everyone played with the same passion and determination because they were proud to do it. We've skipped over the 1989, 1991 and 1993 tournaments where England didn't qualify for the finals. So moving on to 1995, where Pauline Cup, you were the keeper. Do you remember anything specifically about 1995 or what women's football would have been like at the time or balancing other jobs, maybe? It was all spread over. It wasn't like there is now where there's a tournament in the summer. Mm. All I know is that I had to take time off of work, annual leave. We never got paid, and it was just three men and a dog. Like, like you look at the staff and what the players have now, the entourage they have, we didn't have any of that. We just had the manager, assistant manager, physio and the doctor. We had to take our own kit in our own kit bags. The kit was like 10 times too big for everybody, and... Uh, we used to have to wash our own kit in the hotel rooms if we went away if we was like tournament football. 
Never mm. got wash for us. Like they've got it made today, big time. So would you be washing your kit in the sinks after the games and stuff? Yeah. Well, yeah, yeah. Because if you had tournament football, you would keep your kit. They never. We never. I don't recall having a change of kit. And if we did, we might have only had one, one or two sets. Not like now they probably have two shirts per game plus loads to give away. And um, we certainly carried our own our own kit. You had a couple of FA representatives that are called hang-ons that were just there for the wine and going to the opening ceremonies and all these posh FIFA meetings. But other than that, it was just what, all what we knew. We didn't, you know, we, we knew we had to carry our own kit. No one had an issue with it. No one had an issue washing their kit. It was, it, it was what it was. So what was your full-time job then, or was it full-time, part-time to help you balance no, it? Full-time, I was a receptionist working in the city in a merchant bank called Schroeder's. And that my boss was the chairman of Mill Lionesses. So I never had issues getting time off, but I did have to take it as annual leave. How organised did you have to be for something like that, a tournament that's kind of all over the world and and two-legged final and everything like that? We never played nowhere near the amount of games that, that they play now. I think we'd meet up like one or one or two days before the tournament started. Very rarely had friendly games. So it's the, the gaps of meeting up as a squad was months apart. So from my point of view, there wasn't any real planning other than you'd get a letter in the post to say you've been picked for this game and you would meet up one or two days before the game. What was it like in terms of tactics and preparation and how much you knew about the other teams? And not much like it's not until Hope Powell took over that she actually really did do a lot of research on the opposition. But when I was playing under Ted Copeland, there wasn't really much prep done. Even though he, you know, he was he, he knew his stuff. There wasn't really it was more about what we, we we're gonna do rather than what the opposition are gonna do, mm. rather than who their threats are, how can we threat based around us. And what about your training? Because I think you've said before that, because now obviously the goalkeeper, there's a lot more professional, specific goalkeeper tailored training before. What was your goalkeeper kind of one-on-one position-specific training like at that time? What did you do? I didn't have any at club level. I only had it when I started playing for England. And that was really the only proper specialised goalkeeping training I used to get when I used to go away to England. And that's why I used to like going away, because I knew that time was spent on me rather than just putting goals, ball smashed at you. And no one really told you what you was doing right or what you was doing wrong. I was lucky enough to, and fortunate enough to just be a natural. Every club that I played for, all the managers and players said, well, I used to come back from England, I was like 10 feet tall. I was like proper confident because I had that specialised training. And I just think it's so important, so, so important that goalkeepers get that. And what would that look like for you? Was that a one-on-one coach or did you have like crash mats instead of just diving around on a sports hall or what was it like? Yeah, when I was at, growing up at Millwall, so I used to play on the same team as Hope Powell and they used to have those thin crash mats you used to get in the gym and they used to be put on the concrete floor at Brissett Road School and Alan May used to have me diving around on there because we never trained or it was in the gym indoor hall. So it was never trained on grass. Did England get the chance to train on grass? Yeah, yeah. yeah. We used to tra- with England, we used to train on grass, but club level, thin mats with England, yeah, it was on grass. And that's why it was such a luxury. It was, you know, I was in the element. What was it like in terms of media coverage or fans or anything like that at that point? Zero media coverage. 
if there was, it would be like a couple of liners if someone managed to find it. Mm. Obviously, social media. So no one knew about it unless you was friends or family. And that's who, you know, used to come and watch your friends or family. It weren't Joe Bloggs that went and watched the England men's team. It was friends and family. But we never moaned about it because we was doing something that we loved and yeah. something that we that you know so we, it wasn't an issue to us whether there was one man and a dog there or ten thousand people it was we're, we're playing football with our mates for england when you said all the kits were too big for you were they sort of donated from men's teams or were you yeah, buying your own were, so the england kit was from the fa right. but it was men's men's shirts men's shorts it was just so big it wasn't like one it was like you get all these sizes and you just have to put up with it sort of thing. It was ridiculous. When I sit and think about it now, it was shocking. And what was it like with um, nutrition? Were you allowed to eat pretty much whatever you want or did you kind of self-regulate or, or what was it? It didn't did talk about nutrition when I was playing. We had one strength and conditioning training up at Lillyshaw, one, and that was it. That was it. We never, they never, we never had any um, training programmes. Like it did. Prior to Hope Power, we had no training programs. I think we had one weight session at Lily Shaw, which we were thinking, what the hell is all this is? What's the point of doing this? It, you know, no one educated us. No one spoke about it. You know, I'm pretty sure when we went away of England, it was just we had whatever was there, whether it was chips. You know, it wasn't no nutrition. You've got to watch your fats, your proteins, your carbs, etc., etc. But then when we started, Hope started to get involved. That's when it started to get serious. What were the biggest um, outlays for you expense-wise when you were playing for England? It'd be travelling up to Lillyshaw, buying your food on the way back, on the way up there or on the way back. It was just really travel expenses that cost you. And obviously my top, my annual leave. Sometimes if I didn't have enough annual leave, I had to take unpaid leave. You know, we had no boot sponsor, no glove sponsor. Had no agent, had no wages out of it. It cost me money to play for England, but I loved it. And England didn't give expenses, presumably. They did. They st- They did, but it used to take weeks and weeks oh, right, okay. to get. Were you ever at the time thinking, "Oh, I wish I could make money from this. I wish that this was my full-time career." Or was it just so 100%. far away that you couldn't think about it? I don't know. Hundred percent. I used to go into um, schools when I was a women and girls football development officer, and all the young girls just say, "Oh, I want to be a professional footballer." And I used to think. Sweetheart, that's never going to happen in my lifetime. Yeah. I never thought in a million years it would ever, ever happen. And it's just been blown out the water. And I only retired in 2006. That was only, what, 16 years ago. And how long has the WSL been going? So it was only a few years after I retired that they actually started to invest financially in the women's game. Do you remember anything about the girls at that time or what it maybe the amount of dedication it would take to really reached the level that you that you were i just think we got by, we got picked on our ability plan for our club we never used to work on our fitness like some of us used to only train once a week with our club or you know i was you know i, I always lived local to my club so i trained twice a week but you'd go train it weren't no tactic stuff it was like do a bit of like fitness and finish with a five aside yeah. there no tactics is there um, anything else that you want to add or do you think that we've got everything there there's a lot of people I need to thank for building the foundations for me and then people above me need to realise, which I know like the likes of Casey does and Kelly Smith and Rachel Yankee, but it's just sad that there's not more ex-England players involved in the women's game. 
I know I sound bitter, and I am bitter, uh, bitter in terms of you're kind of forgotten. Once you retire, that's it. You are a nobody. You're just a, a, a number. But, you know, I want to change my time for the world. We're into the 2000s now with the 2001 Euros. More Marley, I wondered, first of all, what are your memories of that tournament, if you've got anything that you can recall? I actually probably remember more, like, the journey to it, more than the actual being there. And there's a, probably a number of reasons why that was the case. You know, obviously, I'd made my debut, like, 1995, and I was quite older then, and making that transition to the seniors. And we'd missed out on a couple of events post that. So we'd had made um, the Euros or the World Cup and the build-up to that. So 2000, this Euros was like massive because a group of players had stayed together for a couple of, you know, a number of years. Mm. And, you know, they hadn't qualified for anything since 1995. So the actual, you know, relief and kind of elation in the build-up to that was like, you know, so memorable, it was unbelievable. But it wasn't easy. Mm. <laughs> you know, we had we had Norway in our group and I think we had some difficult results against Norway. Um, but the playoffs that we played in were um, against Ukraine and it was tight. We played away, it was tight, really tight. I think we won that 2-1, if I'm being honest with you. But all I can recall from that was rooming with Pauline Cope and Pauline Cope being ill in the middle of the night. And obviously, you know, the level of ability from goalkeeper from Pauline is like second to none. She was like an outstanding goalkeeper at the time. And I roomed with her and pretty much we were up all night before one of the biggest qualifier games possible. Um, Pauline Cope couldn't play in that game. And a young Rachel Brown stepped in. Um, life had a brilliant game and you know everyone you know not, you're not trying to protect her but everyone was like you know trying to support her the best possible way that we could we didn't particularly play well for a number of reasons obviously I can recall it I've been up all night with Pauline basically rooming with her obviously you know not having Pauline's ability but then Brownie coming in and stepping in and you know doing really well for us was like amazing so that's the I think it was 2-1. It's definitely, because I definitely think you can see that in that game. Um, you know, set us up then for the home leg um, against Leighton Orient. And, you know, you, t- you know that was probably the most critical game that I can I can remember in most of my, like, international career where you're like, you know, this is make or break and this is what you have to do to step up and qualify for the major championships. And, I, you know, obviously I've got a soft spot now for late naughty in the ground. Mm. <laughs> yeah, for obvious reasons. And we won 2-0 and then, you know, as you can imagine, the celebration and the elation from that was like unbelievable. So the journey actually triggers a little bit more for me. I was working with the under 19s at the time in the build up to that. I've been working with the 19, under 19s for a while. And part of that was, you know, Katie Chapman and Rachel Unit had been involved in the under-19s finals just before the senior finals. So it was quite unique and quite special, really, being the under-19s coach 
and having Katie with the 19s and then playing alongside them mm. in that tournament. And I think that was, you know, they both were outstanding when they first come in and, you know, started their careers. You would never think that they were so young. And I mean, we were playing against one of the great German teams, by the way. <laughs> you know, you look at opposing teams and you pull out one or two players. I mean, off the top of my head, they probably had about eight or nine world-class players, mm. pretty much, you know. And I'm like, it was one of the German great teams. And a lot of, I think at the time, quite a few, a lot of their players were like, might have been semi-professional or professional at the time. And I think we competed quite well with them when they had so many professional players and, and I'm talking world-class players mm. in their team. You know, we were still learning. And ironically, I think after 2001, I feel it was like a significant turning point for the next stage. It was a learning lesson for all of us. And although I'm sure if you ask Hope that, it, you know, it was her probably, it, well, it would have been, it would have been her first major tournament as a head coach, although she was experienced as a player, I think it's a bit different when you're a head coach. And, you know, I think one of the things that stood out for me from that tournament, um, maybe not so significant, but a bit more significant now is, if I'm right, I think there was like six of the eight managers were, were women. Mm. And that's 20 years ago. That's like unbelievable. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, and, you know, high level named coaches and you know the legends now in this day and age you know so that was quite unique I thought in that particular tournament like 20 years ago and you know the fact that we ended up with the two finalists in our group <laughs> we had and at the time even at the time if I rightly remember Sweden had like two of the best forwards at the time they were like obviously playing against them they were like top level you know partnership at the time they were you know big name players and you know um, maybe not as many names would have been as noticeable now in the, in the Swedish team but their front line was like high level and you know they've gone on and I think I think they lost in the final to the golden goal if I'm right you know I think from our point of view I felt at the time it was like the start of the exposure for champ, you know, championships, and I think from that group, I think there was only about four, five or six who then were still involved in 2005 when we hosted. Mm. Off the top of my head, it, I think Kate, obviously, but I mean people who played in a, in efforts, but then people who played when we hosted in 2005. So you could almost say that core of those players then started the trend of qualification moving forward. So although the results weren't great for us, I really think it was a like, oh wow, this is on another level. Yeah. You know, we've got to step up and, you know, we've really got a, or, you know, I think I can't rightly remember, but I think maybe at the time, we're still training once a week. Yeah. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Training once a week and people were trying to get time off and pretty much I think um, I'd, I kind of like left my job. I'd basically walked out my job at 
prior to that because I knew I, there was never really going to be more chance for me. So I think I'd walked out of my previous job and just didn't work anyway <laughs> um, for six months, basically, just so I could train and compete and do the thing. We used to have England programs then. So, we'd, you know, people would set you what to do, but you'd kind of like do it by yourself yeah <laughs> we didn't have no like support it was more down to the individual and how committed the individual was i mean i remember me and karen Burke used to go to wavertree um athletic park close to where we lived and basically i used to chase her for about two years <laughs> <laughs> when you were saying your job and you left your job what was it that you were doing before it's like a private small family business yeah. where it was like accountant payroll. So I basically handed in my resignation, gave up my job, basically. You know, I, I used to feel for, I really used to feel for the other girls who didn't have that flexibility. I was really lucky. And at that time, we, you know, near the end of my career, basically, obviously I'd retired after that tournament. We were starting to get paid per game or attendance or per day. Can't remember what it was, but we were starting to get paid to be away with England. So it was like, for me, it was like luxury, but it still wasn't for some players. It wasn't meeting the needs of their financial circumstances. They still had mortgages and, you know, other things that they needed to support. I was, you know, lucky with my own personal circumstances. What was it like in terms of the backroom staff because now they will take almost as many backroom staff as players and SNCs and physios and everything and what did you what was the sort of structure like there well I think at the time it was Hope and who was the head coach I think we had one assistant coach and then a goalkeeping coach um, I remember having an analyst at the time and like Hope was pretty strong on like you know clips and data and you know with less resources Hope was always detailed and diligent with kind of how she went about the game plans that's one of the reasons of our success we were structured and we were organised mm. and that's down to the way she managed that I feel no we didn't have we had physio and a doctor basically yeah. <laughs> we had a physio and a doctor and then I think we had two scouts that's it. That was okay. our team. <laughs> yeah. And obviously team man like an operational manager, team manager who'd like do all the logistics, sort the flights out. But just like actually after you just remembered me now as well, we got Aqua Scootum suits. Is it Aqua Scootum? Yeah, the designer in London got Aqua Scootum suits and I think they organised like it was, te- we looked awful, but they had like shades with like England badges on. Okay. And we got um, a private plane out to Germany as well. Okay. And yeah, that was a first. Is there anything else that you want to add or do you think that we've got everything there? My name on my shirt and that was the first time you'd experienced that. That's a big, when that happens, yeah, that's a big thing. Playing for England and getting your name on the back of the shirt, that's like, wow. Was this the first <laughs> time that happened then? Yeah, pretty special. Yeah, so and we had. I think we ended up with about fourteen shirts. <laughs> oh, really? Did you did they print one for each game then? Well, I, I, I think it, I think at the time again, I'm not 100 percent sure, but I think at the time you got it. It might make sense. You got two for each game you would have played in. 
Mm. in case you needed to share that makes sense doesn't it if i'm saying 12 of there was a lot of shirts but obviously it's a bit you know that was my first experience of getting your name on the back of the shirt and i think that's massive that's that's a nice moment for your family i feel you're listening to the athletic women's football podcast part of the athletic podcast network I wanted to ask about Euro 2005, which hopefully might stick out with it being a home Euros. First of all, Rachel Yankee, do you have any specific memories about that tournament in particular? So 2005, I remember it was in obviously the Northwest when we were going to, uh, to meet up. I picked up Karen Carney on the way and drove up with her. And then um, my roommate was Mary Phillip. And yeah, I think... The biggest thing for us is when you're when you're in in the hotel and in the camp, you're in your own little bubble, and you don't really know what's happening on the outside and, and what people are saying and what's what's going on. So, women's football obviously didn't have that much sort of media attention. It had more than it it, it did previously, but it didn't have as much as it does now. But you know, the it sort of took off the amount of people that were sort of talking about the tournament and then go, driving to the first game. Just remember driving past, there was like a pub and there was just like hundreds of people outside this pub, like men, women, just all out there and just waving flags. And it just, it, it looked like you were going to a men's game. And that's the only thing that I can sort of, sort of related to uh, it was kind of like what's going on like where are all these people going and then seeing people you know walking down the street with like my name on the back of their shirt and just being like what is going on it's just you'd never really experienced that before obviously not to not to qualify and not to go any further was was disappointing but I think you kind of you feel proud that what you've what you've kind of achieved and the amount of people that are speaking about it but but yeah I remember sort of dropping Karis Carney off um at home on the way back to London and sort of sitting in her house and just being like just feeling really deflated but in terms of football I can't really remember much of it (laughs) sorry (laughs) no there are a few things I kind of want to follow up with there what were the expectations on you back then and in terms of like the funding and everything that you got what were the returns maybe that you were expected to deliver and how far were you expected to go I don't know if it was even discussed, to be honest. I don't think there was an expectation like there would be an expectation on the team now. I think it was, you know, we obviously wanted to try and get out of the group, but we had Finland, we had Sweden. It was the other team. I can't even remember who the other team was in the group, but, you know, it was was hard. Um, I don't think there was expectations for us to, to go and win it because... You know, things were being put in place for women's football to grow it, to be more professional, to be better than what we were. But, you know, it still would have been, I'm sure, Germany or Norway or Sweden that would have been the leading leading sort of teams in the Euros. When you look at that tournament and the attendances, one of your games was 29,000 people there. Mm. What was that like for you as a player and how did that differ to what you were used to in the league and, and your weekly games? <laughs> well, weekly games, you could, I could probably pick out and name everybody in the crowd. <laughs> um, so, you know, 
it was very different. I don't think any of us had really played in front of 29,000, the pressure of of the tournament with it being a home nation's FA Cups were, you know, your one big game where you'd get, you know, big crowds and, and TV um, exposure, um, FA Cup finals. But I think as players, we wanted to embrace that. We, it, we did, I, I do remember us being, it was a different... It was a different atmosphere. I remember what, going out for the warm up because people have their own routines. I'm not. I don't. I didn't necessarily have superstitions and routines, but I kind of liked to see that my teammates were how they normally were. And I remember that game especially. People changed. People were a lot quieter. People um, were either trying to get themselves in the zone, but you could tell that there was there seemed like there was some nervousness there and, and maybe people were on edge. And it's only natural because of the pressure of the game and wanting so badly to do well. But, you know, we made sure that, you know, we got the win of that game, which gave us a good start. Do you remember, because you talked a little bit about the media interest being greater than it was initially, do you remember that starting to accelerate a little bit or what was that level of interest like? Yeah, no, it was definitely... No, it was accelerated. There was, uh, you know, billboards with quite a few of us on it. You know, campaigns. I think, I think people were back in the team. Were were knowing the team as well. I think. Correct me if I'm wrong, but Umbra launched an England kit that was fitted for women. We did the kit launches for that with, with Rachel Unick, David Beckham, and um, yeah, boots. I'm sure that there was boots that were obviously made especially for players. So, yeah, I think all the all these things, yeah, the game was moving on to the next level. I mean, it was it was the beginning, but we had it a lot better than got 2001. I remember being at that Euros a lot better than, you know, the the players that had come before us. We still had a, you know, an environment where, you know, you've got a lot of coaches, you've got a lot of uh, sports science and, you know, a lot of people that are your support staff was 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 greater than than what it used to be, and your video analysis, and you can analyze other teams. So, yeah, the game had the game had moved on to previous from previous years, but it wasn't it wasn't professional. So, you kind of you need that that background of being able to train every day and have those minutes in you. So when it when it comes to the latter stages of games, you you're able to to still compete at the highest level so you know it makes it it makes it a whole lot easier now when the girls go into this euros that they've got you know being a professional training day in day out being able to you know eat the right foods being able to rest at the right times not having to not having to sort of train and then go to work or and then train again afterwards and and trying to fit things in and not not getting enough rest and sleep and, you know, it, it makes a big difference. It, it does. And, um, you know, I think it, it, we were building towards that, but we, we weren't quite there in 2005. What struck me when looking at those attendances, because when it was a home Euros and then you see attendances of kind of 29, 30,000 and everything. And then maybe afterwards, what was it like? Did you go back into the league expecting that to carry on and then it didn't? Or was it a bit of a kind of drop down or... Do you think that maybe they took advantage of those attendances and that interest as well as they could have done? No, I don't think I don't think they ever have. 
you know, you can go and look through year on year and seeing that, you know, that we, we can draw in big crowds, but then afterwards we haven't done enough to keep those people the interest. And you need to make sure that people, you know, know about the league and know when the games are and make it easy for them to, to then obviously go. You look at the WSL now, although it's better, it's still not, not every stadium is full, is it? So I think we, I think we still have the same problem. So, Enia Luko, what are your standout memories of Euro 2009? Yeah, Euro 2009 was, uh, was a great year for us, for England. You know, England women got to a major tournament final. I had a very good tournament myself. Um, that was my first year playing in the WPS in America. And my whole kind of professional career shifted for club, you know, playing for St. Louis at the time. And so I, I remember going into the tournament super confident, like that I was kind of ready to play at the highest level. If I recall, I think we started off quite slow. I think we got out of the group the best third place. And then I remember beating Finland 3-2. And obviously it was in Finland. And I scored probably one of the best goals of my career, dribbling from the halfway line and dribbled sort of five, five six players, I think, and then scored. In just that goal itself, I think it really represents where I was in my career, you know, having to play it, you know, in a professional league in America and, and just having that level of confidence to do, to score that goal. And then obviously we got to the final after beating Netherlands in the semi. And I think that showed like, you know, just kind of the gap in terms of where Germany were at and where we were at as, you know, as a footballing nation. So. Obviously, losing 6-2 wasn't fun, but I think everybody was so proud of the fact that, that you know, we'd got, we'd got that far, um, got to the final, uh, tried our best, um, but just there was just too much of a gap with the likes of Birgit Prince on the pitch, you know, who remains to be one of the you know, best forwards that's ever played the game. I also have to say, I think a lot of people forget that, you know, Hope Powell got us to a, a final, I think that that gets lost and forgotten and yeah, the game's moved on and, you know, there's, it's moved on in the best way possible. But I think, you know, she has to, she deserves a lot of credit for what still hasn't been achieved beyond that point, you know, since 2009. What was it like with the FA running the England team? Was it central contracts at that point or was it unpaid? And how much provision did you get in terms of kit or backroom staff? What was the structure and the funding and everything like? Well, I think um, at the time, central contracts had just come in. Central contracts, I think, were discussed after the World Cup in China, which was 2008. So central contracts had just about come in. It was very new. And I remember that I didn't have one because I was playing out in the States. Mm. And they wanted to encourage players to stay in England. Um, but it was a bit of catch-22 because if you stayed in England, the league wasn't really very good. But then if you went to America, you kind of had to sacrifice a central contract and potentially give up your, your place with England. Although, it, you know, Hope Powell said to me at the time, she actually felt that it would be good for me to go to America and, and you know, be tested more as a player. So central contracts were very new at the time. Obviously, there was investment in the, in the structure. You weren't allowed to work more than 24 hours a week. Um, you had to, you know, train and follow a programme. You know, so, so effectively the FA bought the time of the players 
and we were moving towards more professionalism where players weren't having to sort of take unpaid leave in order to play for England. Mm. So that was the start of, you know, that was the start of a change that I think was really, really needed for a lot of players. Do you know how much roughly that might have been finance-wise? Yeah, I think the first central contract was about 16 grand a year. So it wasn't, you know, it wasn't a lot of money. Um, but I think, you know, if you add that onto, you know, part-time work, you know, at the time, um, obviously I was in America. So, I mean, I didn't get that 16 grand. Yeah. But, you know, that was compensated from the fact that I had a contract in America. But for players who were in England, let's say they worked as a teacher, you know, that and they had to sort of get dropped down to part-time teaching, that supplemented you know, yeah. a part-time teaching salary. So it wasn't, it, it was better than it was before, put it that way. And what about the media coverage side of it? Did you, obviously when you're out there to a certain extent, you're in a bubble, so you might not necessarily be aware, but can you remember how much interest there was during the tournament and then as it progressed? I think at that time, no one really cared about the women's team until we like got to the final, was every final. And even then it was like, you know, column on the back page or like three three pages in from the back page. It wasn't like it is now where it would have been, you know, on the ticker of Sports Sky Sports News or, you know, I, I feel like the press only really cared because we were like, you know, doing well. There wasn't coverage really from throughout the group stages. From what I recall, I, I may be wrong. But if you compare it, for example, to the 2013 Euros, where we obviously flopped and, and got out of the group we definitely felt a lot more media presence then mm. which was directly after the olympics there was a shift in 2013 but i don't think that was there in 2009 and what about in terms of attendances and fans were you still playing to fairly empty crowds or was it quite um, large audiences yeah so i think 2012 was the sort of, sort of watershed moment for us in terms of Attendances, you know, obviously we played Brazil at Wembley, 75,000. We played at Millennium Stadium in Cardiff. Some games were played at Old Trafford. We got knocked out against Canada in Coventry. So that whole Olympics really exposed us to great crowds. Um, and so come 2013, I think we were a bit more ready. Yeah. And of course, you know, there was sold out stadiums in Finland. 2013, I think. That was sort of sellout crowds as well. So, yeah, I think the 2012 Olympics was a sea change in terms of like players being used to playing in front of massive crowds. And obviously, that's that's that was the catalyst of what it is now. How many backroom staff did you take with you? Was it a huge group, or was it still quite a small operation at this point? Yeah, I think Hope did a really good job of actually professionalising the whole process of being a professional athlete. So. Dawn Scott would have been, you know, the head of sports science. We had a psychologist, Misha Gervais. We had a head of medical, Pippa Bennett. We had a performance analyst, which I remember for him as a performance analyst, I'd never seen that role before. He was ahead of his time because what he used to do, he used to cut film and like show it at half time. And, you know, you'd be able to watch clips and, and that wasn't something that was the norm, certainly in England or I had never seen it before. Obviously, we had physios. So we really had a full, like, multidisciplinary team. Brent Hills was obviously the assistant coach. We had a goalkeeper coach as well. So, yeah, Hope had a really big multidisciplinary team that was effective. And, and you know, we never felt as players that we didn't have what we needed. We had Naomi Datsun, again, that was 
ahead of conditioning. You know, we had we had a lot. We all had everything that we needed as England players, I think. Anita Asante, I don't know what your standout memories of 2013 are from both an on-pitch perspective, but maybe off the field as well. Yeah, I think from the uh, 2013 Euros in Sweden, my vivid memories is obviously where we were staying in the Hilton by the like this kind of lake or whatever you want to call it. And um, I remember it was really hot because it was like the summer and stuff. So everyone was in like super good spirits and there was a good vibe in and around the hotel. There was a lot of like journalists and, and people covering the tournament at the time. So it felt like, you know, we were getting like good amount of attention or the tournament itself was being highlighted and we were being followed as a team and, and, and as individual players. And I just remember how excited I was because at the time, I think I was the only player playing overseas um, and I was playing in Sweden at the time for um, Copperberg, Gothenburg. So I was like, you know, buzzing to tell my England teammates about Sweden and take them to the cafes and show them around. What are your most striking memories about on the pitch and the football side of it? Well, in all fairness, I think it's the one tournament that I personally, and I can imagine some of the other players too, would rather forget about. And I think that was the feeling like, you know, we had come into the competition, I think off the back of a sort of an 11 game unbeaten run. So we did have really good confidence going into the tournament and, you know, we felt that we could really compete and, and do something really special. But then, you know, we actually had quite a difficult group, you know, with Spain and France and and Russia. And what I really remember is playing against um, Spain and in in the moment, I think, you know, it was a really difficult game. And it felt like the whole time we were just fighting to to stay in the game, to to try and score, to try and give ourselves the best chance of, of going through. Time added on to added time. And it comes from Adriano Martin. Party didn't get it. Spain have won it all over again. Alexia Putellas just wanted it a little bit more. It felt like it, it just wasn't going for us. We didn't have the kind of energy as a group we didn't have the creativity as a group it just it felt like it really wasn't our tournament you know it felt like it was a really uphill task for us you know as a team to 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 get a result and we ended up losing that game what was the status like in terms of resources for England were you better funded and better resourced than other women's teams or was it still very much a kind of full-time part-time hybrid at that point Back then, 2013, a lot of the players playing in England were nowhere near on the kind of full-time contract that we're on now in you know in the WSL. In terms of the league, it wasn't as uh, sophisticated from a professional sense. Then I, I was playing abroad as a full-time in Sweden. And I know I think that was probably the early phase of when maybe just before then, I'm not sure if you know, in the central contract and all those sorts of things. I think that happened a bit earlier, like around 2009-ish. But, you know, in Sweden, there was a lot of clubs already fully professional or at least playing, paying, sorry, a core squad, a fully professional contract. So that was what we was up against. 
Um, in terms of France, you know, teams like that that we met, I'm not so sure about what their structures were, but of course they had really world-class players playing for clubs like Lyon and players like Le Sommer and Nassib and, and, and those types of players that were doing really well domestically. So in, in terms of competition, you know, I think we weren't as developed as a nation from the domestic game in a complete professional sense compared to now. But there was a lot of expectation probably because of the results we had leading up to the game, uh, to the tournament, sorry. And perhaps because it was probably one of the first tournaments where we got real proper attention, that expectation was really high off of that basis, but maybe not with the same perspective as to where we really were development-wise as a team and as a nation in the overall game and landscape. I was going to ask about that because um, obviously now with the WSL week to week gets far much more coverage than it did 10, 15 years ago. And you talked about that perspective of where the England team really was and everything. What was the press coverage like for you as England players in the middle of that tournament and during that tournament compared to what you were getting around the league and your general club games week to week? Yeah, I think in terms of the tournament coverage and and that perspective, it felt like maybe that was the real first time that it felt like, you know, there's real kind of impetus to, to, to follow and at least the print media cover our games, do those presses, you know, prior to the games and, and, and post games and sort of, we had FA TV at the time, so we were trying to do our own kind of like get to know the squad and get get that better interaction between us and the, and the fans. And for the tournament, I think they did a great job hosting the tournament in Sweden at the time. I remember the, um, you know, in the local town squares, there was like screens and things like that set up and lots of people showing up and watching and and that type of thing. But you know, if I was to try and go back now online, perhaps, and even try to find good archives of footage and things like that, I think I'd have a very hard time still. Uh, and I think that, it, you know, reflects kind of where the game was at the time compared to now. What I do remember is the the aftermath of the tournament, you know, the press coverage. England on their way home after just three group games. Plenty to be discussed about the future of the English women's national team. The criticism, you know, from the the press and also comments, you know, that maybe our manager made about the team and our performances and things like that. And it wasn't a a great feeling. It wasn't a great time. What was it like for you as players to be criticised like that? I mean, was that the first time for you that you'd had that level of criticism? It, It was really tough because, you know, you go from points in your playing career up into this tournament where you're getting success and no one cares and there is no attention, you know, or when you fail and and no one cares. But then finally the spotlight is on obviously what it should be, a major tournament and it doesn't go our way and it, and it isn't all good, the stuff you read, but it's the first time you have to really deal with it and understand, you know, what resilience is and how to overcome those setbacks or those failures and how you can move forward. 
And what about um, kits and boots and, and that sort of thing? How Were you getting your own tailored women's fit kits or did you have to go out and buy your own boots or were you sponsored? Where were we at with kit by this point? Yeah, with kit, we always had um, kit. You know, we had the same kit as the men and, and sponsored. And also, you know, thankfully, it's, it's kit sizes that fit us. <laughs> but from that aspect, it was all really good. You know, we always had with England a kit man and all that stuff was always provided. But in terms of boots and stuff like that, I, at the time, I wasn't sponsored by a, a boot sponsor I've only been sponsored by a boot sponsor once in my whole entire career, properly, individually, and that was Concave, and that came a lot later. You know, that was not even a maybe a consideration or a possibility. And in terms of diet and everything, was that fairly regimented and did you have strict diet plans or were you kind of left to your own devices? No, I think whilst we were always on site, like within the hotel complex and we were having meal time together all of that stuff was practically I guess organized for us because sports side and and the, the coaching staff and all of that would decide on the meal plans and the nutrition whilst we were together so you know of course that would have been healthy and and things that would allow us to be able to perform 100% and have the energy to do that but you know when we were having our own downtime and able to explore Lynn Sherping and walk around and do other things, then it was down to our own personal choices. But I guess having said that, throughout my whole time with the national team, through all the levels, we always had education to some degree on um, nutrition, the benefits of low or high GI foods and all of this type of thing. So most of us had quite a good knowledge and would understand, you know, what is good for us to eat and not eat and that type of thing when it with regards to nutrition. What was the feeling among the England team like in terms of maybe what the legacy of this failure should be or the spotlight is so much greater now and we have to deliver or were there any discussions about what this failing meant for the future of the England team or the future of the sport? Yeah, I think post that tournament, I think it, there was definitely a sense of it was time for a change and that, you know, whether that be, you know, players or coaching staff management that, you know, sometimes you just need to freshen things up. But also I think not just for us, you know, I think in general, in terms of the resources, the attention, everything like that, it was another opportunity really. It was a window of opportunity to go, you know, how can we progress this sport further? What, what developments need to be made to take England to the next level, you know, to, to, to drive up that competition within the squad and within the country for, for future tournaments. Jodie Taylor, you were the star of the England side in the 2017 Euros. What are your main memories of that tournament? Good memories. Like, I mean, I just remember it being bittersweet. Like, I think individually for me, it was a very good tournament. Obviously, most notably, scoring a hat-trick against Scotland in the opening game. Here's a chance for England to strike the first blow. It's Jodie Taylor. It's 1-0 for England. It's a hat-trick for Jodie Taylor. The first ever England hat-trick in a major tournament. Uh, winning the Golden Boot. You know, beating France, scoring in that game. 
England build now sensibly and then explosively plunge into the penalty of Jody Taylor for England. Watch on! It's in! It's in! England lead France by a goal to nil! Jody Taylor has done it! We haven't beat France in what 40 odd years, whatever that record was that we broke. To beat them in the quarters to make the semis. Um, obviously, they were all great moments. Um, but then, obviously, unfortunately, get beat by the Netherlands in the semis. Um, which I, I think, as you remember, stepping foot on the, the pitch and even the warm up and just seeing like a sea of orange and just the energy that that generated for them. You know, you're late in the late stage of the tournament anyway, there's like fatigue and tiredness. Just, it was just like their 12th player, you know, and like. I think I always felt whoever won our game was going to win the tournament, mm. uh, and obviously that that is what happened. So, you know, I mean they were great at that, that tournament as well. But um, yeah, so it's bittersweet. But I think from an individual standpoint, it was, it was one of the best sort of the best tournament I had in the English shirt personally. We exceeded the expectations, like out externally, internally, and at that World Cup coming away with bronze, I think was you know we we definitely did better than what we should have you know and that was a turning point for the team like the belief and the confidence in the group you know we really like had a belief that like, oh, we, could, we could win this compared to like in the World Cup as much as it was kind of floating around like we're going to win the World Cup I don't think anyone truly believed that we were going to win it that kind of set us on our way I think to be like the lionesses that they are today That was Katie speaking to Jill Coulthard, Marianne Spacey-Kale, Pauline Cope, Mo Marley, Rachel Yankee, Eniola Aluko, Anita Asante and Jodie Taylor. So much to digest there. Apologies once again for the slight audio gremlins, but I'm sure you'll agree it's been worth it. From sleeping on the floor, fry-ups, using annual leave to play, oversized kit, men's kit, being washed in hotel sinks, no tactics at all to where we are today. It really, really demonstrates in a nice way, but also in a shocking way, how far uh, the game has come and where it had to start. What stood out for you most, Katie, having done all of those? I think a few different things stood out for me. And there are some that if they weren't in the audio that you've just listened to will be in the article. There were some moments where the game was further along than I expected. So Mo Marley was talking about going to a kit launch and they gave them designer sunglasses and you were thinking that this was the early 2000s by then. And you, I wouldn't have expected that. And when Rachel Yankee was talking about going to a kit launch with Michael Owen and David Beckham, which we mentioned in the article, was that it first era of when I started getting into England so that to see that and look at those pictures and see the kits that I recognised was was really enjoyable. But I think it's the moments of the real hardship. So Jill talking about very casually how they would just sleep on sports hall floors, for example, or have a fry up before. And Pauline talking about how she would have to say leave from the bank to go and and train or would be training on crash mats and didn't have proper goalkeeper training and stuff and they're the moments when you've got real frustration that there were these elite athletes who were just having to compromise and do things that were probably not very helpful towards their performance and things that are physically uncomfortable mentally really tiring too just because of the game that they love so much and this is the only way that they will get the opportunities to play on those stages so I think that while it's wrong that they ever had to do that in the first place, we all owe a real debt of gratitude for them for persevering and for creating a history that I think in a lot of ways is still unexplored in the women's game. I found myself, Katie, honing in on the introduction of tactics. I just think that's something you presume 
no matter how Mm -hmm. amateur there are tactics at play. But you really do discover that it was thanks to Hope Powell and the impact she had and bringing in backroom staff as well, Mm. that that changed. But I mean, am am I doing too much of a disservice to say sometimes they're going into tournaments as England playing for the national team? a bit clueless about the opposition. Well, some of these players were saying that they, especially with their work commitments and the limited funding, not necessarily being able to stay out for weeks on end to acclimatise and to do whatever. So some players would turn up the day before a tournament play and then go home and that would be the extent of their preparation. So it was Eni Aluko who was going into detail saying, when I went away with England was the first time that I had video analysis and I had this and I had that. And I was very surprised that in 2009 when they were just getting around the time that they were having central contracts, but a lot of players were still having to supplement that with with secondary jobs and other things on the side, that the tactics and the video and the backroom staff were as developed as they were because it's almost curious to think that you've got players who are working in a bank or working in estate agents or whatever they're doing. Then they're going away with England and getting the full complement of video analysis. It's quite a... It's quite a contrast in a strange it's way quite a heady it, mix. Yeah. Yeah. it would explain why pre-1995 there was no England in 1989 91 tournaments mm. or 93 wouldn't it if, if there weren't any tactics <laughs> yeah. at play then but also England's comparison to other countries as well I was really struck by Mo Marley for a, uh, a couple of reasons as well as hero worshipping Pauline Cope even more than I already did just because she was <laughs> she was such a brilliant interview Katie so well done for that but what struck me about what Mo Marley was saying was when they were out in Germany in 2001, they started to get a sense of how women's football could have a platform and how particularly the German team were full of megastars and how they were treated in that sort of home tournament. So that sowed the seed, really, I think. Mm. And the team really realised, Hope Powell, it was her first tournament, so we had the, you know, start, starting to get analysis and tactics through. But the team realised for the first time that they needed to step up. There was a collective understanding after that experience that they had to step up. Most of them were only training once a week. And that tournament was the first time Mo Marley ever had her name on the back of her shirt, which mm. is something we take for granted now, isn't it? It's interesting in a lot of ways. I think that a lot of players, when they go to the tournament, and Mo wasn't the only one that observed this. And Anita was saying, again, it might be in the written piece if it's not in the audio, that she was playing out in Sweden at the time. So then to see the media interest that Euro 2013 had generated in England was a big wake-up call for her of, right, this is what the game could be. And it's interesting, I remember going out to France for the World Cup in 2019 and in some cities there were loads of posters and loads of decorations and a real spirit and interest in the World Cup and for some there was just no marketing, fan zones were empty, there was just nothing. So I think that that's an experience that we're still having now all those years on. Mm -hmm. It will be interesting to see at our Euros this summer which cities really are taken over by Euro fever and grab it and run with it and which ones are kind of indifferent or it's not really like there's a tournament going on and if there are any places like that. So it's certainly something that I think was revisited a lot by different players of coming to different countries and just seeing the um, differences in how the game's perceived, how it's viewed, how it's marketed and everything. It's certainly not as uniform as it is in the men's game. Yeah, it's given us the opportunity now to throw forward to this summer and hopefully that has got the juices well and truly flowing. I'm afraid that's all we have time for on this week's Athletic Women's Football Podcast. Thank you very much, Katie, for your time, for those brilliant interviews and to all of the England greats uh, that you chatted to as well. Well, thank you so much for helping to promote their words and, and the piece as well.
Well, it's been an absolute pleasure hearing from them. We've got another preview show coming up as well, Lindsay. So this is uh, the build-up, really, to the Euros coverage that you'll be getting on the <laughs> the pre-pre-show. <laughs> <laughs> it is. So the next show will be a preview, all the info that you need about all the teams taking part in this summer's Euros. It's a home tournament. It's going to be huge. And we're going to get you right up to date with what you need to know before a ball is kicked. There'll be a daily podcast during the tournament as well. And do make sure that you tell your friends and family and get them listening too. We hope we are one of your only destinations for Euro content. Lindsay, we've got a busy time ahead. Until then, perhaps a little bit of relaxation and a little bit of a gentle warm up before the tournament itself. I'm going to go off and do what I know the England players can't anymore. I'm going to go and have a fry up, Kate. (laughs) (laughs) So that's it from us. Bye for now. The Athletic.